0: What if I did do something differently? What would I do if I were to live my life in service to the climate crisis? And with that question, I think it's really important to establish every role is needed in this time.
1: I'm Ben, and you're listening to The Climate Pivot. For today's episode, I spoke with coach and activist Laura Hartley. Combining her passions for asking good questions and climate activism, Laura founded her School for Changemakers, Public Love Enterprises. Through her courses and coaching, she helps people to unlearn and dismantle systems that inhibit our thriving, whilst working towards a more just, regenerative and loving world. We chatted about the connections between planetary crisis and burnout culture, how the narratives of separation, capitalism and patriarchy have shaped both us and our world, and how we might all build careers that are reflective of our values. Laura gave me so much to think about, and I found her dedication and passion for her work genuinely inspiring. I think this is going to be essential listening for anyone making their own climate pivot or curious about starting that journey. Thanks, Laura, so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. It is an honour to be here.
1: How are you feeling today? How's your day going?
0: You know, my heart is a little heavy today. There's a lot happening in the world. A lot of violence, a lot of confusion, a lot of pain, and I think that's kind of sitting with me. But as a whole, I'm also feeling grounded and resilient in this time, so I'm excited for this conversation.
1: It can be really difficult to separate out how you're feeling and how you are inside when there's so much going on in the world that we can't escape from and really shouldn't escape from, but it it can be a real challenge.
0: It can. You know, I think we sometimes think that, you know, things that are happening somewhere else in the world or so far away or what we read in the news somehow shouldn't really affect us or affect our mood quite so much. But they do. They have a very real lived experience in our bodies and honoring that space between what we're going through, what our loved ones are going through, what the world is going through, I think it's a really sacred space to explore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I hope we get into some of that in a moment. Maybe to have a bit of a positive note to begin on, what is currently bringing you joy?
0: Oh, I love this question. I mean, so much, actually. So, like, I'm living in Canada at the moment, and it's fall. There is a change of seasons. It's really beautiful with, like, the leaves and the colours. And, you know, I'm Australian, if you can hear my accent. So, like, we don't really get this autumn weather quite like you do here. And every bit of it just brings me joy. It just feels like magical to kind of walk around. And I totally get the pumpkin thing that you see now as well and the obsession with it.
1: I really relate to that. I th- I find seasons, yeah, they bring so much. And although the, this time of year is, is tough in the Northern Hemisphere, because obviously it's getting darker, just the privilege of being able to watch the seasons change. I forget every year how special that is. And then it, it happens. So I know your your work has many strands, and I'd like to go into that during the course of this conversation. But to begin with, could you try to describe what a day or a week looks like for you?
0: Oh, good question. So... I really refer to myself as an activist and a coach, and a lot of my work is facilitating deeper thinking and deeper and more meaningful responses to the climate crisis and to the crisis that face us as a whole in this world. And so my day and my week looks a lot like working with people one-to-one in conversation around what they're feeling, where they're at, where they want to be going, how we make meaning through this time but also facilitating larger group discussions around, you know, what is ours to do? You know, how do we steward our power? How do we start to get free from systems like capitalism or patriarchy and systems that really are not serving us in this world? And so there's a lot of reflection, a lot of looking at emotions, uh, a lot of really considering the deeper aspects of what is trying to arise and speak through this time that isn't necessarily a clear, like, oh, I sit down and I do this but gives a lot of space for like freedom and creativity and play.
1: That's very cool. I think that's it's so important to have that that creativity and that play at work. And I I don't know what I would do if I didn't have the opportunity to do that to at least some degree. What to you in that work gives you a sense of reward?
0: I obtain a lot of meaning from what I do. And I think that... You know, so often when we're looking at what we're supposed to do in this world, we are taught so many stories that say, well, you just go to school and you go to university and you get the right job and you follow the career ladder and, you know, eventually you'll reach this place where you'll be happy. And I think for most people, myself included, that place doesn't really exist, right? Because that model is deeply flawed. It's it's not actually tapping us into anything with authenticity, anything with purpose, anything with connection. Is not tapping us into a deeper place in the world. And so I love my work because I derive great meaning from it. Because I think that we are faced with some of the greatest existential crises that this world has ever faced right now. And if we are not using our lives, if we're not using our careers and the tools and the purpose that we have to be part of remaking the world, then that for me feels meaningless, feels purposeless. And that's not gonna bring me joy. That's not gonna give me anything to really drive me throughout my life.
1: That hugely resonates with me. And that's a a realisation that I had a number of years ago was that if I wasn't achieving a sense of of meaning from what I was doing, that's when I began to feel unfulfilled and, and all the other things like stress and burnout were massively amplified. And I know we'll come on to that in a minute. But I'd just like to go in on this notion of meaning because I've I've read a bit of discourse online over the past few weeks about how this is not something that maybe the current younger generation, Generation Z, Z, are taking for granted. And it really made me pause because I'd taken for granted for quite some time that actually life should be full of meaning, work should be full of meaning. And I suppose my question is, are we burdening ourselves with the challenge of having to find meaning from our work?
0: Oh, wow. I mean beautiful and big question i think making meaning is a human endeavor i think it's inherent to being human and i think that it is something that comes with age and with time and with wisdom though i don't think it's something we do when we're in the younger first stage of our life you know when we're really kind of establishing our identity discovering what we care about discovering responses and boundaries and the limits of who and how we can be meaning is something that often comes later you know, it's, it's very different to ambition. It's very different to just, I want to reach this stage or I want to do this or, you know, meaning is something that I think we are forced to make when you have to reckon with the very real and sometimes impossible to change troubles of life. You know, when you reckon with grief, when you reckon with loss, you know, when you reckon with, with real profound anger that you don't know what to do with. It is through these experiences that then you have to come to this point of meaning. And if you don't come to this point of meaning, then I think that can be a a confusing and a sad place to kind of live from. And this isn't to spread necessarily that there is one meaning or one truth or one way to be. I don't believe that. I think meaning is something that we make, however that means it for us. But I think to see it as a burden, rather than actually to see it as an opportunity and a possibility and a lived sense of something that can bring us joy and bring us connection, it's a framing that I understand, but it's not one I'm sure I agree with.
1: Thank you. That was such a beautiful answer and came at it from a, from an angle I ha- really hadn't thought of before. I suppose implicit in, in that critique that I was sharing was was this idea of, like there must be something more important, right? And to me, that is very much a conditioning that I am trying to break out of, that the paycheck, the status, all of this is is somehow the end goal of work. And to a degree it has to be, right, because that's the, the world we live in. But it would be a shame if we sacrificed something that feels much more core to who we are and what we need to be.
0: And I think most of the world, that is what we're taught to do. We're taught to sacrifice what it is that's truly meaningful to us, that feels authentic to us. You know, oh, you can't make money as an artist, you know, become an accountant, become a lawyer, do something sensible, follow the logical path. But I think the idea that that's the only way is just a lack of imagination. You know, there's nothing that says that you can't follow what's meaningful and make a good income doing it, that you can't have a flourishing life and a flourishing community. But if we sell our soul and our joy in the process of remaking the world, then I think we're just upholding the status quo in some sense. We're not really creating any deep transformation that we'd like to see.
1: Yeah, I agree very much. Seeing as we've touched on finding meaning in careers and I suppose pivoting towards meaning throughout life, Could you talk a little bit about your career journey, for want of a better phrase, to date, and what has led you to doing what you do today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I've always been fascinated by coaching. Like, really, to me, coaching is just about a love of good questions and That is what I love in this world. We have so many answers, but we do not have really good questions. We don't have the right questions to facilitate new possibilities. And that's what I've always wanted to be part of generating. But when I first studied coaching years ago, you know, I wasn't sure what area of coaching I wanted to go into. You know, there was climate, environmental issues. I was very passionate about those things, but I didn't see them as urgent as I do now. And I knew that traditional kind of corporate coaching wasn't for me. So I did a lot of jobs over the years that were just like to pay the bills and hey, this will like earn me good money for a while, worked as an executive assistant in law firms, in FMCG companies, a lot of big global corporates that you would probably know. And it was around a few years ago when I started getting, a bit more than a few years ago now, getting really actively engaged in climate activism, when I started to really wake up to like, oh, this isn't. This, this isn't working. This is happening now. Like, guys, we need to like do something that I started to question. Well, hey, what would coaching in the context of climate look like? And then through my climate activism, I also saw huge amounts of burnout. And I experienced this myself, you know, but within a year of joining movements, so often people would be completely spent, you know, every night you'd be on an organizing call and you'd be in this meeting and that one and you'd show up to this rally and this protest. And then a year later, you're like, oh, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. Because you know what? You've got a full time job and you've got a family and you've got a life on top of all of that that you're already doing. And so I started to then question, well, what are the questions, what is the meaning, what are the responses that we need to actually make activism more regenerative, to make it filled with joy, filled with possibility, that it's actually something that gives us energy rather than takes it away. And so out of that, I started my school for changemakers. I work with activists, people in nonprofits, people remaking the world in many, many different ways to really help them to get free you know, to unmake the systems of the world, but also to steward their power and find what's theirs to do in this time so that we can live and act more regeneratively.
1: Amazing. Environmental causes, climate, when in your life did you start to feel the tug of those?
0: So as I was growing up, you know, I was very much taught that the climate crisis was kind of something that was still a hundred years away in the future. And this wasn't even that long ago, you know, when we're looking at teachings that were 20 years old and, you know, was kind of seen as something that ah, those people in the future will fix it. So it wasn't something that at a really young age, I was like, oh my God, that's my calling. Like, that's what I need to be engaged in. I did discover towards my late adolescence that I really cared about the world and the suffering of the world. I had gone through a really profound experience with depression and and mental illness throughout my adolescence. And part of my healing at that time was this reconnection to a world larger than myself, recognizing that there was a world and people in it were hurting and systems weren't working. But I didn't have a traditional education, I didn't have a traditional upbringing. So, you know, even though I thought, like, well, maybe I should go work at like an NGO or maybe I could do this, that didn't really end up being my path. I didn't go to university, I actually took off traveling, I took a number of jobs, and I worked my way up through, you know, administration into management and different spaces in work that I was very good at, but didn't bring me a lot of meaning and didn't bring me a lot of joy. And it was through a lot of time traveling in my 20s that I really, I learned to fall in love with the natural world. You know, I I went from the Amazon to the Arctic through like the Wakan Valley and these incredible, stunning places of natural beauty. And every time I went to them, just my heart opened in a way that I didn't know was possible. And it was around this same time as well in my late 20s that I started to really become aware of the severity of the climate crisis, that I started to kind of permeate my consciousness a little bit more. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, so we, we need to be doing something, but I still wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. I knew at this stage that I wanted to go into coaching, but I had no niche. I had no real area of things that I was helping people with. And I think the rise of groups like Extinction Rebellion, you know, a number of years ago were incredibly liberating for me. Because that was like, oh, we can do something. And I started to make this shift into like, hey, what what does like kind of NVDA look like? What is a nonviolent response to the climate crisis? How do I start to take the intellectual and spiritual teachings that I'd had and start to play with them in an embodied sense? And so my journey has never been linear. It's come out of these different stages of realizing that the world is there and that it's hurting and that being part of my healing, realizing that I love the natural world, that I love being out in nature, that I, I love life on this earth. And that that is a very beautiful thing. And that's so important to me because for a long time I had no connection to that, you know, recognizing I love coaching because it lights me up. It's so fun to have conversations with people all day, to ask good questions, to help guide people to where they want to be. Like that's an amazing privilege that I have. And then as a climate activist and getting engaged with nonviolent direct action, getting engaged with kind of grassroots activism and realizing, oh, well, I love this and this speaks to me, but also this is like not sustainable. People are like burnt out and exhausted and like we are not happy. Like if we're not happy, how are we going to create a better world? And so it's all of these spaces bridging and intersecting that came and really gave me the idea to like, hey, let's start a school for changemakers. Let's work with people about how do we remake the world and how do we do it in a way that is just, do it in a way that's regenerative, do it in a way that facilitates vision and creativity and in whatever way it is that people need because there is no one right way. We need every way. So there's many different paths and many different threads, but it certainly wasn't, oh, I I always knew this was what it was going to be and I became an engineer and, you know, nice and simple. It took a practice, I think.
1: I love the idea of discovering that love of the natural world a little later in life, because so often people talk about sort of growing up amongst it or always being, you know, obsessed with animals, with plants, whatever. And I think we don't celebrate stories of discovering things, you know, a decade or two later than that.
0: I agree. And, you know, that's actually, that's very true. Like my girlfriend was like that, you know, she grew up in beautiful rural area and really had this love for the outdoors. And in a way that mine was a bit different, you know, mine came later and mine had a different resonance and energy because of my experiences. So it's an important thing wherever it is that we kind of learn to connect with it in whatever space in our life.
1: Completely. And for me, that journey has been from growing up in a quote unquote, rural area, but kind of later on realizing that actually that was nature depleted in many ways and that this this landscape that I'd kind of idolised as a young person had many problems with it and that there was a lot that needed to be done to bring it back to health and to life. So it is interesting how these sort of childhood impressions of, of our environment do shift.
0: They do. And I think, you know, the spaces that we grow up in also kind of, they often bring something to us. Like I know I grew up near the ocean. And for me, the ocean is always this point of reconnection now. It's always this point of like, ah, okay, I'm good. I'm here. I'm home. I can, I can stop. I can sit. You know, so the environment that has shaped us, whether that be mountains, whether that be farmland, whether that be more of a rainforest or bush, I think it has a defining feature in who we are and, and what brings us comfort throughout our lives
1: Mm, that's really fascinating and i suppose going back to your work what have you learned about the state of our world and the impact it's having on people because you've sort of alluded to it and i guess what i'm getting at is are we in a time where stress burnout depletion of all sorts are exacerbated for whatever reason are we at a critical time for that
0: i mean without a doubt and this isn't just for activists either this is the world in general most people are burnt out and exhausted. I think we live in a world where most people are not truly meaningfully happy with their lives. And we see this with whether it's just the kind of constant race that we've got to be doing to like keep up with the next thing or just the grief of ongoing trauma, just the kind of living to get by. Well, this is just the way life is. You know, this is just what you have to do. We're not really as a society very happy. You know, I think if we were, we'd have a very different response to the climate crisis. We'd have a very different response to the systems that are causing it. But the thing is, the systems that are causing it also aren't serving us. And so we live at a time when I think a majority of people, and there are certainly surveys to back this up, are certainly across the US, feel burnt out, feel exhausted, when you have rising rates of depression and anxiety. And we, on top of this, we sometimes have this idea that in the way that so many birds and animals in the world know, When something is happening, they intuitively and instinctively pick up on weather events and changes and things that are happening in the world around them. But somehow we are exempt from that. And somehow as humans, we don't have that, okay? Because we're so disconnected from the natural world. But I think we also know on some level that we are living through the sixth mass extinction, that we're living through a really profound point in history when there is so much loss and grief. And so all of this is playing out in our nervous systems, is playing out in our minds, in our relationships. And that sucks for us, but it also sucks for the world because it's not a place from which we can do our deepest, most meaningful work.
1: Two things that really jumped out of that for me that sort of stopped me in my tracks. The first one was, if we were happier, we would be responding differently to the climate crisis. I'm paraphrasing what you said, but wow, I really, I'd never thought of it in quite that way. Could you just develop that?
0: Well, here's the thing, right? I have this theory that, you know, we sometimes have this idea that to make change means that we just keep pushing, just keep doing, just do the next thing. I can rest on the weekend. I can rest after this next action. I can rest after this next vacation. But, you know, when we keep pushing through with that mentality, one That is what I call a sense of internalized capitalism. We equate our worth with our productivity. But we end up exhausted. We end up irritable. We end up with more conflict in our relationships. You know, the tools that we need in this time, our creativity, our adaptability, our resourcefulness, our resilience come from our joy. They come from our thriving. They come from when we feel lit up. The more lit up and good we actually feel in our lives, the more we're like, hey, you know what? I don't want to go back to this job that really isn't serving me anymore. I'm thinking about starting this idea or starting this organization. Or, you know what? I've always wanted a career shift into this place. Or, actually, I'm feeling really good and really resourced. I think I have the space to like help my community in this aspect. Or, have we thought about doing this because I'm playing a bit more and I'm more creative and now I'm like, maybe that corner block over there could become a community garden or we could start rewilding spaces. So the tools that we need, the space that we need within ourselves comes from feeling good. We cannot feel bad enough to feel good. We cannot feel bad enough to help the world. And when we carry this idea that it's just exhaustion and pushing through and resilience is about endurance, I think that's a really kind of toxic and unhelpful place to be working.
1: I couldn't agree more. And you've sort of reminded me of the trope of the struggling artist, the tortured artist, and how we celebrate that and that was something I certainly bought into as a teenager and kind of into my 20s and as somebody who likes to be fairly creative and, and make things. It took me a few years to realise actually that doesn't really work. I mean you, you might be able to get out one or two good bits of work if you're, if you're struggling but that will be against the odds. Somehow I, I wonder if that's kind of capitalism's fiction, its excuse for treating artists and creators badly.
0: I think it is. And I think it's also one of those stories that again, kind of well, keeps people avoiding the arts and keeps people in like this mindset of we always need to be producing and hustling and grinding and like, you know, the arts is kind of antithetical to that. You know, it's really the arts can be very subversive. It can be a very kind of playful place that really shines a light on injustice that shines a light on humanity shines a light on culture. And capitalism doesn't like that. And so it either kind of co-ops it and folds it into it, or it kind of shames it and makes it bad. It's like, well, you're not going to survive, okay? You're just going to struggle. And, you know, who who really wants to struggle? Like, it is entirely fair to not want to spend your life as a struggling artist. So finding the ability within us to start to recognize what is capitalism and whether that's true and whether we can actually work around that, I think is a powerful place that we need to be working in this time.
1: Yeah, I can completely see that. Another thing you touched on a moment ago was that we shouldn't think that human beings are somehow exceptional to feeling danger, crisis in our body and experiencing those stresses. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, particularly how you think the state of the world and particularly the climate crisis is sort of manifesting within us individually.
0: I think when we're looking at the roots of the climate crisis, there are certainly a few different spaces that we can look. Capitalism is one of them. That's one of the biggest drivers that we have, and I often speak about that. But there's also this idea of separation, you know, this idea that humans and the natural world are somehow separate. And I was in Montreal at the beginning of the year in the biodome, and they have this big sign-up that kind of says humans in the natural world are on a collision course. And the moment I saw it, I took a photo of it because I was just like... This is so problematic when you're talking about climate change that we're using this language that there's humans and there's the natural world and that the two are separate and they're not connected, right? So somehow the natural world can survive without us, and we can survive without the natural world. And the natural world definitely can survive without humans. But I think you guys get what I'm saying. And so really, what we're looking at here is the ideology and the belief system of separation in our culture and in our society that says that there's you, there's me, that we survived out of this idea of survival of the fittest. You know, it's about how much you could dominate and control and win, and you know, just pushing through. And these stories aren't necessarily true right? There is huge amounts of evidence to actually show that it was our cooperation, it was our diversity, it was our compassion that led to our evolution as a species, that these were what were as remarkable about us, not our competition. And so when we're looking at this idea that somehow, well, we don't know what's going on in the world, that we don't feel it in our bodies, I think that is in part because of this story of separation, this ideology of separation. And so we end up living incredibly neck up. In our culture. You know, I think therefore I am. Everything's about the brain. You know, so often even in English, how often we say things like, I feel stupid. Stupid is an emotion. It's a judgment or I think I'm afraid. You know, I'm not feeling afraid. I'm thinking I'm afraid. So there's these kind of confusion that we have between what is actually real emotion, what is real feeling, what is happening in our body, what can we really lean into there and what is happening up here in our thoughts and our beliefs and in our mind. And the two kind of become melded. So when we're in this world as it is, I think it would be naive of us to assume that it's not playing out in our bodies, let alone even if you take out the very real instinct of being human, just being alive in this world and seeing a news report on our phone flash up every two minutes about another crisis, what that has in our nervous system, what impact that has. So there's a lot of different dimensions to this, but ultimately I think it's about seeing ourselves as nature, recognizing that we are the natural world and that we're doing this to ourselves, we're doing this to, to life. And as life-giving beings, we can feel that.
1: Yeah. The paradigm you're suggesting is an antidote to separation is really powerful one, not just in terms of the human nature, but also we're seeing a world that is increasingly divided along political lines, often along lines of identity that are politicised, whether it's sex, gender, race, sexuality. And coming from a place of cooperation as as opposed to competition actually holds so much potential for reimagining what the world could look like.
0: It does, but, you know, this often quite a scary place to work in because we don't live in a world that really holds us as a possibility. You know, we we kind of very much still have this narrative that you're on the left or you're on the right or you're on this side or you're on that. And, you know, to even have dialogue in the middle now is, is kind of, it's hard. You know, sometimes you're judged for being able to see two sides of a story, but two things are always true at once. You know, we don't live in a binary black and white world. And so learning how to sit in that gray, learning how to reach across divide, learning how to have conversations with people that we disagree with, to be in relationship with people that we disagree with, even profoundly, I think is a necessary skill if we want to move beyond this, if we want to step out of the hyper-partisanship. Because until we start to break through that idea that we are all separate and that humans are separate from the natural world and there's all of these kind of layers and hierarchical features... Then we're kind of destined to keep recreating the systems that we currently have. We need to be going to the root of the crisis in order to transform it.
1: Yeah, and that's very tough. What are your suggestions for how people work through that?
0: Oh, good question. I mean, this is a particularly big area, so I don't know that there is a single answer. But I do think part of this actually returns to a level of being able to be in relationship with conflict. You know, we see conflict as divisive and harmful and bad, and we either avoid it at all costs, or when we enter into conflict, we're kind of like, okay, well, we need to go our separate ways now, okay? There's no meeting in the middle. And I think there's a question that's worth holding as to how can we start to see conflict as generative? How can we start to see it as kind of neutral, that it's not good or bad, it just is, okay? It's a very natural response to the tension that comes with disagreement. And how can we start to have this conflict move us deeper into relationship, deeper into ourselves, deeper into love? How can we start to embody our values through this time rather than, ah, well, I can't have anything to do with this. You know, and this is one of the problems we see today also with concepts like cancel culture that, you know, well, it's like, OK, well, they've done this thing. They're, they're out. They're bad. They're all bad. Rather than holding the nuance and complexity that I think, you know, we all do good things and we all sometimes do harmful things. And a lot of the times our harmful things are not coming from an inherently bad place. They're coming from a place of trauma. They're coming from a place of unrecognized patterns within ourselves and things that also need healing. So how can we start to see humans as a whole person? How can we start to see ourselves as whole beings and lean into the discomfort of conflict rather than shying away from it or turning away from it?
1: Mm. I've uh, struggled with the concept of cancel culture for a while because I, I think it is it is often misapplied sort of, or maybe misnamed. But what I do see in this is a just what you said, a desire to sort of mark good and bad and to separate people into two camps. And I think that is just happening so much. And I really I really struggle when I sort of see people who maybe align on 99 percent of things, but find the one percent that they don't.
0: Which is the challenge of like solidarity, right? Mm-hmm. Like how do you have solidarity, even with, amongst the left, how do we have solidarity with people who generally we may feel that we want the same kind of thing, but we have different tactics, different ways of going about it, different ideas of what's right and what's wrong. And so when we're talking about conflict and when we're talking about solidarity and harm and and these kind of issues that come up, it doesn't mean that there's not accountability. It doesn't mean there's not consequences. It doesn't mean that, you know, we're just like kumbaya and we all live and love and, you know, just forget about all of the differences. But it's really about learning to embrace those differences in a different way. And this isn't comfortable work. You know, this is work that takes practice. I don't think it's work that we have been taught how to do. And so there is this whole skill that we need to relearn, so many of us as adults, and hopefully for like the younger generation, many of them hopefully learn it a bit younger, as to how do we sit in relationship? How do we be in relationship to conflict, to disagreement, and to really kind of be with what is uncomfortable and see what we can create out of that space rather than what we can destroy?
1: Mm. And that speaks to a challenge of the environmental movement more broadly, which is that we are working in a context now where, on the surface, the majority of the population in most of the global north accepts broadly that something is happening, that the earth is getting warmer. Not everyone, but certainly the significant majority. And yet there are still these huge divisions. And I think if you asked a lot of people in in these movements 20 years ago what the biggest challenge is, they would say convincing climate deniers or convincing the other side and it feels like we've got to a point where that sort of happened. Maybe they haven't acknowledged that they've been convinced, maybe they've just sort of quietly absorbed it within their worldview. But we're still not moving in anything like the same direction. Why do you think that is?
0: I think that really belongs to the story of the world as it is, and we need to look at the systems that make up the world that it is. You know, so I often bring it back to like these three areas, you know, that's Firstly, capitalism, which is both an economic system and also an ideology. Secondly, patriarchy, the system that kind of values the masculine and men and male leadership above all else. And thirdly, this idea of separation. Now, white supremacy plays a big part in this as well. And I don't speak too much to that aspect, but it intersects with every single one of these. But when we're looking at all four of these systems, we need to understand that these systems have a story, that they play out in us, as us, and through us. So when we're looking to make system change, so often we look to the idea of policy and we look to government and we look to like these big picture external pieces. And we also say that this is work just for the politicians and for the economists and it's for the activists to drive that change rather than recognizing that every single one of these systems lives within us. They live in humans. They play out in our mindset, in our beliefs, in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. So let's look at capitalism, for example, because capitalism is one of the leading drivers of the climate crisis. And that's really because of three principles. You know, the first is the pursuit of infinite growth on a finite planet. It is obsessed with growth. It only knows how to define success as growth. And I think it was Edward Abbey who said growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. It also is built on the foundation of scarcity. You cannot have infinite growth without the production of scarcity to drive that growth. You see that in planned obsolescence, the way that we design so many of our devices to to die long before they have to, because then you'll buy another. And it's also based on this principle of the devaluation of beautiful, living, complex resources like jungles and forests and oceans to lifeless resources, so that they only have value when we can take something from them. And that might be timber or that might be tourism, but then it's not inherent to who and what they are. And so my question then becomes, well, what happens when we live in a culture that is built on these principles, right? We start to internalize them. And that means that we internalize capitalism, becomes the equation of our worth with our productivity. And we experience things like that feeling that there's never enough time, okay? Like, there's just, ah, you know, I can squeeze a little bit more in today or it's, oh, fine, I can rush through, you know, I can get it done. That sense that we've never done enough, okay? Or feeling guilty when we rest. You know, going into work when we're sick, because that matters more than anything. And so when we're saying, well, what actually moves the world right now? I think we have this idea that it's just about policy. It's just about external change. And no, there is really a foundational piece to being human that needs to change first. There is a foundational piece to our culture that needs healing, because the climate crisis is a spiritual crisis. The two are the same. So unless we are doing this work To examine how all of these systems, you know, capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy, separation, play out in us, as us, and through us, then we're destined to recreate them, we're never transforming them, and that means we're never transforming the climate crisis. So that's the space that I'm interested in, and and that for me is the reason why. You know, we have the know-how, we have technology, we know what we need to do, we have solutions, it's a, it's a crisis of, of will, of the belief that this is just the way the world is. There's nothing we can do. The economy is the most important thing. Why do we think those things? We need to return to culture. So that, for me, is always that space that we need to come back to first.
1: Mm. Oh, gosh. I was, I was recently at a climate tech event, and I'd listened to many hours of people talking about incredible interventions and solutions that are being developed And then several hours of people talking about the challenges. And we're now at a stage where most of those challenges are financial or political. And I asked a question of some of the panellists and just said, well, wouldn't it be a shame if in 2050 we looked back and said, well, we knew how to save the world, but we couldn't find the money and it just...
0: It, it's incredible, right?
1: It's so surreal. It, it, it became so stark for me in that moment that just collectively within that room, there were enough people to do huge amounts of good. And yet they were spending a lot of their time working out how to incentivize people to pay for it.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely mind-blowing that kind of shift when you really start to see it that, oh my gosh, we know what there is to do. We can do things. And we just have this illusion or, or disillusion that, There's not enough money. There's not enough time. And so, so many of us are living from this space of scarcity and we're living in systems that are very resistant to change. You know, the way I look at capitalism is that it's both an economic system, but it's also an ideology. It's a belief system. And that belief system has an incredible ability to, to reproduce itself, but also to co-opt whatever it needs to kind of bring into it or to redesign itself itself to survive. You know, it is like a virus that it just wants to live no matter what. And so stepping out of that and getting free of that is work that we need to do, I think, in order to actually challenge this mindset that, yeah, somehow we need to just convince people to pay. Right? Mm -hmm. It it's an incredible dichotomy, but it is all mindset work.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I'm just forever amazed by how political a statement it is to critique capitalism still. I mean, particularly in the US, for instance.
0: Well, in the US in particular, you know, I I find capitalism also becomes wrapped up with like democracy and freedom and things that kind of become somehow synonymous, but really aren't. Yeah. And so it is a radical act still to criticize capitalism. And, you know, I believe in a world that has post-capitalism, you know, that really we can look at what does well-being economics look like? What if we actually built our economy, not on the principles of growth and scarcity, which is what it's currently about, and we assume somehow underlying it, if we just keep growing enough, that people will be happier and everyone will rise with it. But we know that that doesn't really happen. Mm. So we need to look at the underlying principles of why we have an economic system like this. Why do we think this is okay? What power structure benefits from this why do we believe in this what if we started to divest our thinking from this what if we started to really invest in our community in local economies in revolutionizing and radicalizing the spaces in which we live and work to say hey let's do this differently let's embed care let's embed compassion let's embed community at the center of what we do i think that we keep looking for change to come from the top and it's not going to come Rob Hopkins has a wonderful quote that I love where, you know, in the context of the climate crisis, he says, if we wait for governments, it will be too little, too late. And if we work as individuals, it will be not enough. But maybe if we act as communities, it'll be just enough, just in time. And I really think that is such a powerful piece because it really speaks to where we need to be working and where the real power of transformation can lie today.
1: It really is. And I love Rob Hopkins' work and I would just shout it out at this moment for anyone who hasn't read his work. Something you've kind of created a lot through this conversation so far is really positive visioning of the future. And I think that can be so hard when we're talking about something that is really distressing so much of the time. I think a lot of people also struggle with it because we don't want to undermine the existential challenge we face and, given that this is something you talk about a lot and you're engaged with the nuances of it on a day to day basis, I'd love to know where you sit with that and whether you think there is space for doom as well as optimism.
0: I think there's space for realism as well as visioning what is possible. I think the greatest challenge we face in this time is the idea that certain things just aren't possible, that the world is just the way it is. it just can't be done, people won't pay for it, people won't change and That's completely false. This world is made by people's imagination. This entire world is made because somebody dreamt it to be this way. We can remake it in any given moment, particularly when we come together. We have immense power to do so. But if we don't understand that, then, you know, we kind of just keep relying on those old stories. I do agree that there is complexity here with the climate crisis. I am under no illusion of the very real severity and the very real urgencies that it is asking of us and that, it is, that it's speaking to at this time. I am under no illusion of the very real possibilities of collapse of food systems and increasing refugee numbers and a world that we can't even imagine in the coming decades. But I do think when we only tell that story, there's no room for possibility there. Because what's the alternative? To just keep business as usual? To just keep the world as it is? We're just avoiding this catastrophe? I think as climate activists, we need to be telling a story of something that is possible, of something that is beautiful, of something that we actually want. And this matters really for two reasons. One, because... As activists, when we're continually telling this story of disaster and they need to save the world and they need to fix the world and all of these things, those stories are playing out in our nervous systems. And our nervous systems do not know the difference between the impending climate crisis and, you know, some stranger in a dark alley with a knife or something, right? It's going to react in the same way with stress, with adrenaline fatigue, constantly pumping our body full of hormones that is not really serving us. I think that there are more regenerative ways to do the work when we tell stories of love, stories of service, stories of care. That still has doing the same work, but doing it from a healthier foundation. But I think secondly that it matters in the context of really changing the world. You know, If we are wanting to bring people on board, if we're wanting people to get active in their communities, if we're wanting people to get active in politics and really engage in their civic responsibility to really step up and say, hey, what if I did this? We need to tell stories of what we can do. And there is so much that we can do. But we are so conditioned to believe in the stories of dystopia. There's a wonderful quote, I have no idea who said it, that says, we often find it easier to imagine the apocalypse, right? The literal end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism because these stories are so ingrained into us. So for me, the greatest thing we can do is use our imagination, use play, use creativity, get outside, bring some joy into this because it is absolutely necessary to remake the world, to start to have a vision, to start to know what it is that we actually even want.
1: Completely. I think that quote was Mark Fisher, but I'm questioning whether it was a quote of a quote.
0: Yeah, I've never known who said it, so I will I'll look into that.
1: His Capitalist Realism, really great work. I mean, it with so much of what you've said. I love your, your sort of manifesto for that optimism and agency, I guess, instilling agency. And from what I understand, it really is backed up by all the empirical data on effective climate communication that people respond badly to dystopia. They feel unempowered.
0: They don't know what to do. Exactly, because you hear that news and you're like, oh, like excuse my language, like you know, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. And then you feel like there's nothing you can do, and so you just go about life as it is. And because a lot of the time people do need to go about life as it is. They need to earn an income, they need to pay their bills, they need to do this next thing. And so it's only when we can excite people and say, "Hey, but, what if you started this? What if you did this? What if you joined this? Like, hey, come here. this is fun. This is a great place to be. We can make the world beautiful, that people actually start to reconnect with their own sense of agency.
1: completely. and And that, I think, for me, ties into this thing of why why I think so many people take critiques of our current system personally is because they feel they feel implicated in that because some in some respects they are, but through no fault of their own, you know, us saying we want to dismantle and change the structures that exist. Is not telling somebody that we don't want them to be earning what they're earning or living how they're living. It's saying, actually, we envisage a better world for everyone.
0: Yeah. In a world where, you know, you don't have to, like, work 60, 80 hours a week at a job that you're not particularly happy in to be able to afford this life that you want. Mm. You know, I really think so much of this comes down to, and I've said this a number of times, but this sense of creativity and possibility. Just questioning the stories that we have of the world, questioning the beliefs that we have been taught, that this is just the way it is, and actually choosing to say, but what if it wasn't? what if I did do something differently? What if there was a way? What would it look like? What would I do if I were to live my life in service to the climate crisis? And, you know, with that question, I think it's really important to establish every role is needed in this time. We sometimes have this idea that it's just like engineering, it's just tech, it's just like, you know, that we need accountants, we need lawyers, we need farmers, we need creative, we need literally everybody starting to reimagine their industries. So, like, if this speaks to you, hey, there's no reason you have to leave your job and do something different. Let's stay in your job and, like, let's try to revolutionize it. Let's try to work from the inside. There's so much that we can do.
1: And thank you for articulating sort of my philosophy much better than I ever could and and sort of the reason I'm doing this, because that's 100% what I believe. And I think so many people start to get very worried about what's happening in the world and maybe there's a tendency to overcorrect and to think, you know, I need to, I need to drop everything. I need to go and live in the wilderness, or I need to quit my job and join an NGO. And that works for some people. And that's great. And I would always support anyone to do that who wants to do that. But yes, we still need, we still need doctors. We still need teachers. We need everything.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even within the world as it is, if you work in marketing, if you work in advertising, you know, there is so much greenwashing in the world. What would it mean to start to really think outside of that paradigm? How if we start to subvert that? Like, there's so much that can be done in every space. I genuinely believe that wherever we are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of your own work, what have been the, the significant challenges that you've faced particularly in the niche you've created for yourself, because I think kind of forging a niche is amazing and can be incredibly rewarding and does derive in itself a form of meaning in many respects, I think. But I know it can also be challenging.
0: It can. And, you know, if I think about the greatest challenges that I've faced, I think there's probably a couple. You know, first is there are internal battles to this work. There is imposter syndrome is very real, right? The thought of who am I to do this? Who am I to to go out there and talk about the climate crisis? I'm not a scientist. So there is this element of learning to trust yourself and learning to back yourself and learning to believe in yourself that I think is often required for for a pivot in career and for a pivot in life. And I also think that there has been a journey in learning, you know, I'm self-employed, how to really embed what I consider to be feminist principles and post-capitalist principles into my work. I'm very conscious. I'm not interested in selling from scarcity or urgency, but I still have a business, right? So how do I start to look at what marketing from a relational aspect looks like with authenticity, with trust? You know, how do I ensure that I am embedding consent into what I'm doing, that I'm not just obsessed with this idea of growth for the sake of growth, that I'm really like, oh, okay, there's growth to a point, and then there's maturity. So there's really been these dual aspects of the inner work needed, you know, looking at, am I good enough? Do I believe in myself? Can I support myself? And then how do I create a business that is reflective of the world that I want, that is reflective of the way I want business to be done and not the way that you often see business being done? So there's definitely challenges, but I would say those are two of the biggest.
1: Gosh, and is is that a difficult balance? Because we know that women's work is undervalued and that as a consequence, women are likely to underquote for work compared to male counterparts. Holding that against everything you've just said, do you find attention there? And sort of, I I guess, being able to advocate for yourself at the same time as not wanting to reinforce and replicate those problems?
0: I think it's been a bit liberating in a way to actually realise that I don't have to reinforce those problems that if I am not flourishing and thriving in my life, then I'm not able to create a flourishing world. Like self-world and world work are always connected. Self-work and world work are always connected. So, you know, I need to come back to this space of am I living the life that I want? And part of that is financial. Part of that is ethics. Part of that is meaning. There's so many different spaces I can start to look at there. But, you know, in the, in the world, in my prior lives, and in my prior careers, you are completely right women are consistently paid less, particularly women of colour. And it's really important to know that. But I think self-employment and entrepreneurship actually became a liberating experience that gave me the possibility to do things in a different way, to start to say, well, I'm not going to believe that for myself. You know, capitalism's not the same thing as money. Like, I can really work in a way that is ethical and principled and that is aligned with how I want to be. But that actually also supports me and believes in myself. But it has been a process to learn this and to find... teachers who are able to also offer practices in this regard.
1: Mm. Thank you for sharing that, because I think so many people do struggle with that, actually, in this space. And I think it'll be quite valuable to a lot of people to frame it in that way.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's this guilt sometimes, particularly when we know capitalism is a problem, or like, you know, we know what privilege that we have that, you know, somehow, I shouldn't have too much, I shouldn't have that money, or I shouldn't have that. There's this shame and guilt that kind of arise with it. But if we are not living our best lives, right, you know, then we are not helping the world. Mm. And I'm not talking about wealth here on the level of like billionaires, because I I think most of us are not on that scale. Like that scale is like so far off the charts. It's like in a whole nother direction. It's really just asking, what do you need to flourish? What do you need to thrive? Mm. And that's a different question that I think we all deserve.
1: Right, and and having an honest response to that question as well, which is, I think, takes some work.
0: Yeah, it does.
1: So as you've navigated this path, what wisdom and resources have you drawn on?
0: So a few spaces, you know, I think from a business perspective and from an entrepreneurial perspective, if anyone is interested in kind of feminist entrepreneurship, there are some wonderful teachers out there. Kelly Deals is one who is absolutely amazing and I've learned so much from her work but we also can be looking at this idea of creativity and imagination. We talked about Rob Hopkins earlier and I think that, you know, he has incredible work. So does Ella Saltmarsh and Phoebe Tickle and other people who are really inspiring us to use imagination in a different way. And then I think this third part comes comes back to to community. You know, I'm incredibly fortunate to have people in my life who believe in me and who believe in possibility and who choose not to believe the story of the world that says things can't be done or there's only one way or who are you to try this? You know, that actually really challenge that imposter belief when it comes up and say, that's not true. Like, hey, give it a go. What if? What if you did this? What if you lean into this? What if you back yourself? And those are the spaces that I think we need to be cultivating in order to make shifts in our lives. Do we have community who sees the greatest version of who we could be and really supports us in creating that?
1: And on that note, what do you hope to pass on to the world through your work?
0: I hope I inspire people to be part of reimagining what is possible for their lives and for their communities. You know, we live in a world that needs this now more than ever. So my real intention is that people who want to make a difference in the world but do not know how, that I can inspire them and empower them to first get free from the systems that cause harm, second, steward their power, really learn the agency and the power that they have and how they can use it with care and with ethics and not shy away from it, and third, find what is theirs to do in this time. That is my intention and that is my hope for everybody listening.
1: Thank you for that. And if anyone wants to find out more about you or indeed the work that you do, if they're interested in that, either for themselves or in learning more about what that looks like, where would you direct them?
0: My website is laurahartley.com. I'm also on Instagram at laura.h.hartley and I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook if that's your space as well.
1: Perfect. Before we wrap up, there's like a thousand things we could have spoken about, but is there anything today that you really wanted to, to say that we haven't got around to?
0: To be honest, I think we've said so much and I'm so grateful for this conversation and for this podcast, but I think the thing that I would probably leave us with is just that, you know, if you feel in your bones, in your body, that there is another path that is calling you, I really want to invite you to like follow that. And following what is authentic and true is not always comfortable or easy. It often goes against the cultural stories that we have. It goes against what we've been conditioned to believe is possible or right or sensible for our lives. But that is where the magic lies. And that is what each and every single one of us need in this time. So find that little voice, connect to it, ask it what it wants to do and what it wants to be in this world and see where you can start on that path.
1: Thank you. And I think whether people feel they need permission or encouragement or just that little spur to get them on that path. I think people will really appreciate that. Laura, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been just mind expanding and really enjoyable as well.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. It has been a delight and a joy to have this conversation. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to The Climate Pivot. If you've enjoyed the show and found it useful, I could ask you to leave it a five-star review, subscribe, or donate to the coffee link in this episode's show notes. But if I'm honest, there's one thing I'd really love for you to do. I'd be grateful if you could recommend this podcast to two friends who you think it might benefit, who might be at the beginning of their own climate pivots or wondering how and where to begin. I'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, take care of yourself, others and the planet and good luck with your climate pivot